verses at the end, and then on into chapter 25. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you tonight that you have given us each other, first of all. The body of Christ, a healthy group of individuals committed to you. Lord, we thank you for the strength that we experience in our meeting together. Not only the spiritual food, but the strength that we derive from singing these songs corporately. And the strength that we derive from listening to one another before and after the service. Watching, hearing how you are working individually in people's lives. We see that you are alive because you're alive in so many hearts and it's so encouraging to us. Now, Lord, open up our spiritual eyes that we might understand your truth and these Old Testament stories, these things that happened so long ago, yet we are ever mindful that, as Paul the Apostle said, they were written for our admonition. And so we give you the permission to admonish us, to speak to us, and help us to understand, and may your Spirit apply them to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we all know what an excuse is, right? It's the shell of a reason stuffed with a lie, basically. And excuses are something the children of Israel had a Ph.D. in. I think they got it from Moses. Moses had many excuses why he couldn't be the guy to lead the children of Israel out. And Aaron had a few excuses when uh, Moses approached him. How come you built this golden calf? And he had the wildest excuse and story that here we were, we came together and this calf came out of the fire, you know, and we put our stuff together and lo and behold, voila, here it is. And so we worshiped this thing that came out on its own. And the children of Israel had an excuse why they should complain or they had an excuse why they couldn't enter the land of Canaan, you remember, because there were giants in the land and fortified cities and they'd never make it. They, they would be a dead meat. For 40 years, they failed. They gave excuses. They had a shell of a reason stuffed with a lie. I found in my Bible before tonight's service a little something about excuses, and uh, it may or may not fit. This is found in a church bulletin, by the way. Not ours, but another one. To make it possible for someone to attend church, says this announcement, next Sunday we're going to have a special no-excuse Sunday. Cots will be placed in the vestibule for those who say, Sunday is my only day to sleep in. We will have steel helmets for those who say, the roof would cave in if I ever came back to church. <laughs> Blankets will be furnished for those who think the church is too cold. Fans for those who say it's too hot. We will be hearing, we'll have hearing aids for those who say the pastor speaks too softly. And cotton balls for they, those who say he preaches too loudly. Scorecards will be available for those who like to list all the hypocrites. <laughs> A few unattached relatives will be in attendance for those who like to visit on Sundays. One section will be landscaped with real shrubbery and astroturf for those who find God in nature on Sunday mornings. And finally, the sanctuary will be decorated with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who have never seen church without them. <laughs> it's no excuse Sunday. See you in church. 
the children of Israel were unreliable. At times, they they would voice great trust in God. Then you read the very next chapter, a, a, a shift occurs. They start complaining, God, why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? And I think Moses is going, yes, yes, you should have done that. Because he was the one who was being attacked by so many of them for so long. And so they kind of waffled back and forth. There was no consistency in their walk, and they wandered for 40 years. As I was driving over here tonight, my infamous old car, I have a 1967 Land Rover that my father gave me that I restored over the last several years. It's become sort of a standing joke in my family. Uh, it, It goes all the way back to when I was raised in my parents' home and my dad got this thing and my mom it just it's like get this thing out of here it always breaks down and my dad loved this thing and he passed it on to me and I love it as much and I love to drive around but it always breaks down and you know it's 30 years old you expect something to to go wrong with it almost 30 years old and you know it's unreliable I've driven it to Santa Fe it might take you an hour in your car this thing takes about two hours it's a little slow. It might break down once, but it'll get there. Well, I'm on the way to church, and suddenly I lose complete power. What little power band there is. I mean, you can floor this thing and do 45, and I'm going downhill. And I lose all power coming to church tonight. So I pull over, and I looked down, and I knew what it was. It was the cable that I had put on, uh, busted, the cable to the carburetor. And so I have to cut it and feed it through this little eye thing and, and put on this little bolt and... Um, Anyway, I made it. Without going through all this stuff, I made it. But it's like, it's unreliable. It did it again. The children of Israel wandered for 40 years, and it's like every chapter, every page, you get a little bit tired because you think, they did it again. They're complaining again. They're grumbling again. They have no faith again. That generation that complained so much for the most part, is dead. God said that they would not enter the promised land and a whole new generation would come up. Chapter 25 introduces us to the final judgment on the last generation that never made it into the land, the first generation, I should say, that died in the wilderness. Remember, everybody 20 years old and above, God said, would not enter the land. And so their children have grown up in the wilderness and they're on the verge of entering into the promised land. They've been in the desert a long time. They're at the plains of Moab. We read a little bit last week about Balaam, the guy from Mesopotamia who read the organs of animals in order that he might curse the children of Israel and how God frustrated his curse. In fact, he turned his curses around so that he would bless the people of Israel rather than curse them. This is the final stage before they enter into the promised land, which is God's goal, by the way. The desert was not their goal. God didn't want them to wander in the desert. What was God's goal for them? Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. The closer they got, the more they wanted it. But it seems like there's a final attack and a final failure just before they get into the land of promise. But God's intention for you, by the way, is not that you wander. 
I hear people sometimes say, I'm having a wilderness experience. Hey, join the club. We all have them, don't we? It's not easy. It's not victory after victory after victory. We need a few valleys. We need a few wilderness experiences. They're good for us. They tone us spiritually. God's goal for you is not the wilderness. It's a land like unto the promised land, the land of Canaan. And yet, sometimes we wander around and around and around, and we never learn the lesson. And I, sometimes I look at people's lives, and I, I, I watch them, I've counseled with them, and I, and I wonder, are you happy wandering around in this place? Man, you've been here for years. It's time to grow up. It's time to move in. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses put it beautifully. He said, God brought us out from there, from there being Egypt. God brought us out that he might bring us in. God didn't bring you out to leave you out. God brought you out of sin to bring you into a land of victory. Well, they get to this area called Moab. Balak comes down, tries to curse the children of Israel. His plans are frustrated and... Uh, we finished quickly with the end of chapter 24. And I wanted to just look at verse 20. And I'll scoot on down to the uh, last part of the chapter and we'll move on into chapter 25. Then he looked on Amalek, he being that infamous guy named Balaam who was hired to curse these people. He looked on Amalek out there on the plains, camped, and he took up his oracle and he said, Amalek was first among the nations, but he shall be last until he perishes. He was the first group of people to attack the children of Israel. Amalek, the Amalekites. If you were to look them up in the Old Testament, they always hassled the children of Israel. They were always a thorn in their side. In fact, I think they're a good type of of your flesh, your old nature. They're the first to attack. They're the last to go. You will always be at war with your flesh until you cross the other side of life. I've been asked, when will I stop being tempted? I've been a Christian now for X amount of years. When will this temptation stuff stop? My answer, when you're in heaven... You'll never reach a plateau where you're unaffected anymore. The Amalekites hassle the children of Israel. Now, when they get into the land, God will say, get rid of them. And people have trouble with that because God says, utterly slay all of them. Don't spare any of them. Say, that's mean. Well, couple quick things. We don't have enough time to really get into it. Number one, God gave them 420 years to change their mind. They didn't do it. I would say that's patient. Number two, because they didn't get rid of them, there was a big problem. Here's the story. There was a guy named Saul. He was the first what? King. He went out to fight against the Amalekites, but he spared their king. What was his name? Agag. When Samuel sees Saul coming on the horizon, he's a little bit angry because God filled him in. He said, look, Saul, you know, he's really rejected me. He's disobeyed me. I told him, here's the battle plan. He disregarded it. Instead, Saul comes with sheep 
oxen, goods, spoil for himself, and King Agag. And as he walks, he sees the prophet Samuel, and he just turns on the spiritual stuff. He goes, hey, praise God, man. Well, he didn't say that. You know, blessed are you of the Lord, he said. Which is the same thing. Hey, praise the Lord. I've done all that God commanded. Samuel goes, really? You've done all that God commanded. Why then do I hear the bleating of the sheep in my ear and the lowing of the oxen? You've disobeyed God. You've kept the spoil for yourselves. And so he spared King Agag. Obviously, some of his descendants, after Samuel kills him later on in that chapter, escape. And we move on a little bit later on in history to the Persian Empire, the book of Esther. There's a guy named Ahasuerus, who's the king of Persia. And he is a guy who works for him, named Haman. Haman the Agagite. Agagite meaning, meaning he descended from Agag. Well, Haman had a real trip, pride trip. And he made sure that everybody who came into the palace and saw him sitting there would bow down. He liked that. Turned him on. Well, there was a guy who wouldn't do it named Mordecai, who was a Jew. He said, I'm not going to bow down to you. You're not God. Forget you. This really made him angry. Instead of saying, I'm going to get that guy, he said, I'm going to kill every single Jew in our entire empire. He was like a Hitler. He constructed a gallows to hang Mordecai on and came up with a plot to kill all the Jews. Because Israel failed to destroy all of the Amalekites, including Agag, his descendant almost destroyed all of them. Fortunately, God intervened. Esther was there. And through the prompting of Mordecai, she became the instrument that God used to destroy evil Haman on the gallows that he had made. He looked at the Kenites in verse 21 and took up his oracle and he said, Firm is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain, Cain, shall be burned. How long until Asher carries you away captive? And he took up his oracle and he said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus and shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber. And so shall Amalek until he perishes. And Balaam rose and departed, returned his way to his place, and Balak went his way. Now here's the bad news blues. Then Israel remained in the Acacia Grove. This is a grove of trees centered around the fertility rites of Baal worship and the worship of his counterpart, Ashtoreth. These are pagan gods and goddesses. They had groves, and oftentimes the tops of the trees were cut off, and they formed phallic symbols for their lewd worship with prostitutes in these groves. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Now, flip over to Numbers 31 for just a moment. We get a little more insight that is not mentioned right here in this chapter. Verse 8. Let's just look at this guy, Balaam. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, namely 
Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian, Balaam, the son of Beor, was also killed with the sword. Remember what he prayed? Oh, that I might die the death of the righteous. Did he? Nope. Verse 15, And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? You're about to see who these women are, those women of Midian. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to pass to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and they're a plague among the congregation of the Lord. This is what happened then. Balaam, it says left, but in chapter 31 it says it was the counsel of Balaam that caused this. He could not curse the children of Israel. God would not let him. He restrained his speech. And here we see in chapter 25 the children of Israel going in and committing sexual immorality and idolatry with the women of that area under the counsel of Balaam. The Talmud has an interesting side note, the Jewish commentary, the Babylonian Talmud, on this incident. It says that Balaam and Balak had a conversation. It's not recorded in the scripture, but this is the tradition of the Jews. It seems to fit pretty closely. Balaam turned to Balak and he said, Listen, the God of this nation, there's one thing he hates, it's licentiousness. So if you want to destroy this nation, listen, I can't curse them. What you must do is have the women, your daughters, go in, the daughters of Moab, and commit licentious acts with them. Then, because I can't curse them, God himself will curse them because they'll bring it upon themselves if you entice them. Moreover, it says in the Talmud that there were cubicles, little tents, and the young women were inside. These were the pr prostitutes, and they had their little idols, and they would set up their idols as the men would come in, and they would commit sexual fornication with them. Uh, they would set up the little acts, uh, idols, and it would be a, a time of worship. It would be idolatry. The Talmud says that the older women of Moab were placed outside of these tents and gave the men of Israel kasanim, Hebrew word for marijuana. Loosen them up a little bit. After they got a little bit, hey man, what's happening, dude? A little bit cruzomatic. They went in and they were easy prey for these women of Moab. It's all written in the Talmud. So they began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And they, and by the way, they in verse 2 is feminine in the Hebrew, meaning the women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was roused against Israel. What the men of Moab could not do in trying to curse them, the women of Moab could do through sexual immorality. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. The best attack is always an inside job. What counsel that was. Look, I can't curse them. God bless them. But they can bring a curse on themselves if you get your daughters to commit licentious acts with them. Then God will have to curse them because of their idolatry and immorality. They'll bring a curse on themselves. So it was really an inside job. Remember the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. It's always the most effective attack. 
Think of the United States of America. After World War II, we decided because of the Cold War mentality, we will place missiles everywhere to protect ourselves against the enemy. And while we amassed our weapons to protect ourselves, the fiber of America eroded away. The moral fiber eroded away. It was an inside job. Their flesh was weak. You know, a lot of times we're out pointing the uh, finger at, the world's doing this, the world's doing that, the devil's doing this. And all the while, we succumb to our flesh. And we can be eaten alive on the inside. When Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed by an insider. It was not the Romans that got him, it was Judas. And so the children of Israel fell. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal at Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Presumably, this was a priestess, a Midianite priestess. Now, the pagan religion, the Israel religion, what God gave to the children of Israel. The priests were only from the tribe of Levi, right? They had to be males from the tribe of Levi. Yet, in these pagan religions, the women could be the clergy. They were the priestesses, and often they were the seductresses in the religious systems. And that's probably what this is in reference to, is one of these Midianite women. So, here's the children of Israel. They've gathered around the tabernacle. They're weeping at what had happened the sin that was committed. And here this guy and this gal just kind of run out in the middle of everybody. In the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who are weeping at the door of the tabernacle meeting, they're just, you know, frolicking and being loose. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, saw, uh, excuse me, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the tent, and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Now remember, 14,700 died in the rebellion of Korah. Add to that another 24 grand. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar... The son of Aaron the priest has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And so it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. He was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them, because they had been in league with Balaam and Balak and the Moabites. For they harassed you with their schemes, by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister, who was killed in the day of the plague because of 
Peor. Now chapter 26 is an incredibly interesting chapter. How many did their homework and read ahead? Raise your hands. You didn't? Okay. God bless you. And who else? Raise your hand. You get a prize if you do this. No, I'm just kidding. Well, chapter 26 is a lot like chapter 1. It's just a bunch of numbers. That's why the book of Numbers is called Numbers. Because this is the numbering of the children of Israel. The Septuagint or Greek word is arithmoi, or we get arithmetic. And it refers to the two incidences of numbering the children of Israel. Chapter 1, chapter 26. Chapter 1 is all of the army men, age 20 and above, in the first generation. They're dead now. Chapter 26, same idea. They're conscripting an army, 20 years and above, to fight the battles as they get into the land of Israel. But this is now the new generation. Now, again, it's a little bit interesting that God, while they were in Egypt, protected them and fought for them, and yet God commanded them to have their own army. They were going to go fight. They, they were going to be surrounded with enemies. They lived in a big, bad world. And while God did protect them while they were helpless slaves in Egypt and fight their battles, God told them to have their own army to fight. Maybe you can tell I'm not a pacifist. I don't hold a pacifistic position. Now, I'm not an aggressor either. I'm not saying, you know, stockpile, man, and have a compound somewhere. And No. But, listen, we live in a big, bad world where bad things happen. And I don't think it's wrong to fight in an army, to defend a nation, or to defend yourself, if need be. Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out the first time, don't take a sword with you, don't take an extra tunic, don't take sandals, just go and trust me. And they did. That was short-term mission number one. The second time he sent them out, he commissioned them and he said, now last time I sent you out, you didn't have any money, you didn't have a sword, but now take money, take an extra piece of clothing, and take a sword with you. And the disciples said, well, we've got two swords. Jesus said, that's enough. That'll do it. And so now they're going into the land. They still have to have this army. And this is the second numbering of the children of Israel. Now, I'm not going to read all the names in this chapter. You might get a kick out of doing that. I congratulate you. Uh, you might be looking for some odd name for a puppy or a, a child. I don't know. There's a lot of them here. It came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar. Now, that's interesting. In the past, God spoke to Moses and who? Aaron. But Aaron's dead. This is his son. You see, the new generation is coming up now. New leaders are being instituted. Soon Moses will be dead and Joshua will take over. And it's sort of an, a, a little bit of tension going on as one generation takes over, as I think there always is. The younger generation looks to the old generation and says, Oh man, you know, they're so old-fashioned. We've got it together. We need young blood in there. The older generation looks down on the younger generation. Bunch of young whippersnappers. But it's inevitable. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, is taking over as the priest. Take a census of all of the congregation of the children of Israel, 20 years old and above, by their father's houses and all who were able to go to war in Israel. So they did it. And uh, let's move down now to uh, verse 7. 
tribe of Reuben is mentioned first. These are the families of the Reubenites who were numbered of them, 43,730. Now, the first time they were numbered, they had 46,500, so they lost 2,800 in the second census. And uh, they number the tribe of Simeon, verse 12. Uh, Read uh, verse 14. These are the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. The first time they had 59,300. They really lost, didn't they? They lost 37,000 people. I'm not saying... Uh, they lost them, but this is the new generation. They have that many less this time of uh, fighting men in their army. Uh, verse 15 begins, uh, begins the census of the tribe of Gad. Uh, down in verse 18, these are the families of the sons of Gad, according to those who were numbered of them, 40,500. First time they had uh, 46,650, so they lost 5,150. Gad, Zooks. What? Okay, relax. (laughs) Verse 22, the families of Judah, according to those who were numbered of them, 76,500. At first they had 74,600 in chapter 1, so they've had a little bit of a gain of 1,900. Next to be numbered is the tribe of Issachar, verse 25. These are the families of Issachar, according to those who were numbered of them, 64,000. 300. Now, the first time they had 54,400, so they've gained 9,900. Verse 27, we have the tribe of Zebulun, or the Zebulonites. <laughs> According to those who were numbered of them, 60,500. The first time they had 57,400, so they have a gain here of 3,100. Verse 34, these are the families of Manasseh, those who were numbered of them, 52,700. The first time they had only 32,200, so they have a 20,500 gain, the biggest gain of all of them. Verse 37, boy, we're really going through this chapter, aren't we? Isn't it great? These are the families of the sons of Ephraim, according to those who were numbered of them, 32,500. The first time they had 40,500, so they've lost 8,000. Verse 41, the sons of Benjamin, this is uh, from the side of Joseph, according to their families, those who were numbered of them, were 45,600. The first time they had 35,400 over in chapter 1, so they've gained 10,200. 43,000, uh, 43,000, verse 43, verse 43,000, it's a long chapter, you know. <laughs> All the families of the Shuhamites, this is of the tribe of Dan, according to those who were numbered of them, were 64,400. The first time they had 62,700, so again a net gain of 1,700. Verse 47, these are the families of the sons of Asher, according to those who were numbered of them, 53,400. The first time they had 41,500, they've gained 11,900. Now look at verse 50. These are the families of Naphtali, according to their families. And those who were numbered of them were 45,400. The first time they had 53,400, so they've lost 8,000. Now let's sum it up in verse 51. These are those who were numbered of the children of Israel, 601,730. 
The total from chapter 1 in the first generation of fighting men was 603,550. So altogether, they're only down 1,820 people. In fact, less than that. And I'll show you why in just a few minutes. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. And the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. Really, this is a zero population growth, what some of the experts today are pushing for on planet Earth. It's really only a 0.3% drop altogether. There's really not much of a loss. It's very negligible. So, yes, they've lost, as we always lose in times of disobedience, yet God is faithful. They didn't get wiped out altogether. They still have a substantive amount of fighting men. Over 600,000, 601,000. Now, it's estimated that if there were 600,000 fighting men, if you think of senior citizens, a few couple hundred thousand of them, women, 400,000, children, uh, up to 800,000, plus the mixed multitude, that was the first time, they're pretty much kicked the bucket by this time, you have two to three million people that are marching through the desert in Moab ready to go into the land of Israel. Well, let's scoot down now and look at verse 58. These are the families of the Levites, the family of the Libnites, the family of the Hebronites, of the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites, the family of the Korathites, and the family of the Termites. Oh, excuse me, that's not in there. And Kohath begot Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt, and to Amram she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. So Moses is of the family of Kohath, the priestly line, the high priestly line. So that would give him technically the right to offer those sacrifices, as did his brethren. And uh, other names are given, which we're not going to get into. Look at verse uh, 62. Now those who were numbered of them, this is the Levites, were 23,000, every male from a month old and above, for they were not numbered among the other children of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. The first time they were numbered, back in the first part of the book, there were 22,000. They've had a net gain of 1,000. So if you were to number all of the children of Israel together, there's only been a decrease of 820 from the first numbering. Again, very negligible. All right, now let's get into chapter 27. Look at that. We're covering almost three chapters, at least two and a half. Of course, the evening isn't done, is it? Chapter 27 is the first woman's movement. A movement pushing for civil rights. A movement pushing for, uh, you know, equal status. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad. Aren't you glad you're not named that? The son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. From the families of Manasseh, 
the son of Joseph, and these were the names of his daughters. Malah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. You know how sometimes people will name their children all like the same letter? We have Tiffany and we have... Um, uh, or we have, uh, yeah, I can't even think of them, but you, you, <laughs> you pick the first letter and you all give them that name. We have Tommy and we have Tiffany and we have, uh, what's another one? What? We're getting, con- Teresa, Tyler, whatever. It seems like in this family they did that, but it was matching the last syllable. So again, if you have a lot of girls and you've run out of names... You could take a list. They stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders, and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no son. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Therefore give us a possession among the brothers of our father. It's a very legitimate request. This hasn't been addressed yet in the law of Moses. It would seem that the sons get the inheritance and have special favor. But what about the daughters? What if the guy has no sons? That's what they wanted to know. He said, look, our father died, yes. But he didn't die in the rebellion of Korah, which would seem to indicate that those people who rebelled with Korah not only lost their lives, but their posterity lost the inheritance. Well, what about us? Where's our land going to be? We have no inheritance. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Therefore, give us a possession among the brothers of our father. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. This is a legitimate request because it would seem that the law favored males. It did not. We're going to see in a moment God grants them their request. If you were to look at the other nations around the children of Israel, they favored the male only. Women had no rights in ancient society. And coming into a land where women were seen as simply something a man owned, like cattle or sheep, you know, they're a bit worried. The Bible elevates the position of women, all right? It's important to say that because people are fond of knocking God. And they'll knock God, and then they'll come up to me and ask me to defend God. I don't have to defend God. God doesn't need me as his lawyer. He's perfectly adequate to speak for himself, and I don't make any apologies. He doesn't make any apologies, and I don't have to really qualify what God decides. God is not a male chauvinist. God said, it's not good that man shall be alone. I'm going to give him a helper who will bring him to completion, or a rescuer as the Hebrew says. When the woman was brought to the man, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. We're we're of the same. God took her from Adam's side. And I love what Matthew Henry used to say about that. He said, 
Woman was not taken from man's head to be above him, nor was she taken from man's foot to be walked on by him, but she was taken from his side to be close to his heart, a covenant partner. I also have certain people, gals, who usually say, you know, Paul the apostle, he was a male chauvinist. You read the New Testament. He was against women. I beg your pardon. Listen to what he said. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wow. Men, you are to love the woman that God has given you just like Jesus loves us. He didn't say that to women. He didn't say, women, love your husbands as Christ loved. No. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love us? How does he love us? Sacrificially. Unconditionally. No strings attached. You know, when a woman is loved unconditionally and sacrificially, she feels like a queen. She feels pampered and spoiled. When a husband loves not based upon looks, not based upon action, but simply based upon, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not going to love you with strings attached because of what you will do for me or, or give to me. I love you just for who you are. And I will sacrifice for you and love you no strings attached. Wow. It didn't sound like chauvinism to me. In fact, the New Testament elevated the position of women more than anything else. I think, women, you have the Bible to thank for the liberation of women. Women followed Jesus in the New Testament. They were on his ministry team. There were prophetesses in the New Testament. In the rest of society, basically, women were nothing. In fact, I was reading an old document, an, an ancient Greek text written by a Greek soldier from about 2,300 years ago. He was writing, his name was Hilarion, and he was writing to his wife, Alice, and she was pregnant, and he said, listen, I'm in battle, and I'm so grateful to hear that you're having a child. We're, I'm ecstatic. If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, dispose of it in the normal manner. That was Greek practice, and we hail, oh, the Greeks gave us so much. All right. Now, the Bible gave women a whole lot. They raised them to the level that God wants them to be raised to. And she asked, or... The daughters asked for this possession. Listen to what happens. Verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. I like this guy. There wasn't any clear directive so far in the law of Moses, and he didn't know what to tell him. You know, he didn't try to make up an answer. Well, you know, I sort of feel and make up something. A lot of times people ask me a question. I don't know the answer to it. Skip, we have a very important, it's a heavy, heavy-duty question. Well, I don't know that I'll be able to answer it. Most of the time I say, I don't know. I like that Moses. I, I, I don't know. But I'll find out. And rather than making up something or getting the group together, he prayed about it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad have a weird name. No, speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you shall give the inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, boy, what does he have? Then you shall give his inheritance to the kinsman nearest him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, question. 
What if these gals decided to do nothing? Say nothing. Inquire. You know, they were a little bit aggressive. Hey, wait a minute, Mo. What about us? You might say, well, they have no right to do that. It was legitimate. God even said it was legitimate. They ask. Now, I'm bringing that up because the Scripture says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And yet I see lots of Christians living very meagerly on the spiritual blessing side. God has given victory. God gives joy. God gives peace. Yet I see so many Christians that don't have peace, don't have victory. They're still wandering in the wilderness. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Ask, Jesus said, and it will be given. In Greek, it's more intensive. Ask, please ask, continue to ask, and it will be given. Knock, please knock, continue to knock, and it will be given. So they knocked, they asked, and it was given to them. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abarim, and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. Now, it's sort of a sad note here, as God tells Moses to prepare for his death. He's about to leave the scene. He's going to die overlooking the land, but he'll never go in and, and actually set foot in the land. But God is getting him ready. You know, in one sense, I thank God for those times of preparation before death. And sometimes death comes suddenly. It's a car accident. It's a sudden phone call in the middle of the night when my brother died. My father called me late at night. Your brother has been killed in a motorcycle wreck. Suddenly, no preparation. Not that you're ever fully prepared, but at least when you know you're going to face death and you can prepare for it adequately, it can really be a blessed thing. I mentioned last Sunday night I was going to do a funeral this last week for a dear saint in our fellowship. I did the funeral. Man, was this guy prepared. You see, what had happened is in November, I was asked to do the 50th wedding anniversary vow renewal. The family was gathered around the children, the grandchildren, right here. As he said his vows to his wife, after 50 years of keeping those vows... And she responded, and it was a beautiful time. Now, before the ceremony, he was in the back room, and he said, Skip, I have a heart condition. I won't be here much longer. I want you to do my funeral. In fact, I, I got up the other night at 2 in the morning. He says, I think the Lord woke me up, and I sat at my word processor, and I wrote down what I want you to read at my funeral to my family. I want it to be evangelistic. And my friends, I want you to preach the gospel. And I've written it out. So when I die, I want you to bury me. I want you to do the funeral. I'd like you to read it. I said, hey, listen, I'd love to do your funeral. I'd love to read it. But let's marry you before we bury you. Let's not think about that. He goes, no, I've given it a lot of thought. And he faced death with such hope. And at his funeral, it was so awesome. As we read this and people saw, here's a guy that faced death squarely and was prepared. Now Moses was taken up on the mountain and God said, you can look at the land, but you're going to kick the bucket, Moses. Now, in one sense, it's torture. You're going to see the land, but you can't go into it. Let's say you're on a diet. You're in a restaurant. The guy next to you is eating a hot fudge sundae and you can't have any. 
And you love hot fudge Sundays. You're just watching a meeting. You go, yeah, this is great. Oh, you ought to have one. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot you're on a diet. Oh, but this is really good. Oh, that's torture. Well, here's Moses looking at the land. He can't go in. He can only see it. But notice how God puts it. And when you have seen it, you shall be, notice, gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. Notice God didn't say, then you're going to die. Now, physically he died, but he was gathered to his people. Good way to put it. Gathered to his people, meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The idea here implies that there is consciousness when he passes from the scene. You remember Luke chapter 16, the story Jesus gave? There was a rich man who fared sumptuously clothed in purple every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus. He was a beggar. He had sores covering his body, and he was laid at the gate of this rich man, wanting to get the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And they both died. And the rich man went to Hades, and he was in torment in the flames. And then Jesus said, Lazarus, the poor beggar, was taken to Abraham's bosom where he was comforted by Abraham. You're going to be gathered to your people. It's a good way to look at death. You see, when a Christian dies, it's not really accurate to say you died. And, and I shared that at the funeral on Monday. I said, Cliff didn't die. Cliff moved. That's more accurate. You move. Your, your, your body isn't the real you. The spirit is the real you. There comes a time when your spirit can't express itself any longer in this body because of age or because of a disease, and it's confining. And you're in this body, you think, man, you know, my mind is still sharp, but I can't do what I used to do. It's frustrating, isn't it? And there comes a time when your spirit needs to be released from that body. It's very temporary. Paul called it a tent. And the tent flaps get old, and the stakes wiggle loose. It's time to have something more permanent. Moses, check it out. You're about to be gathered to your people. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hollow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Mirabah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. And the Lord, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, let the Lord, the God of the flesh, excuse me, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now let me ask you a trick question. Did Moses ever make it into the land? Yes, he did. And the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah appeared. It was a guest visit. It was temporary, but he did set foot there. He wasn't allowed to see the land before he died, but then he appeared with Jesus. Okay, we'll get into that at another time. But verse 16, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. God, you pick a leader. They need a leader. Every nation, every group of people needs a strong leader. I'm praying for a strong leader for this country. I'm disappointed in what I see. It's disparaging 
to look at the political scene. And I don't have faith in men. I get tired of politics. But I pray for a strong leader. Because unless people do have good, strong leadership, they become scattered like sheep. God chided Israel right before the Babylonian captivity and faulted the leaders because the sheep of Israel were scattered. Prophesying about Jesus Christ in the book of Zechariah, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I'm praying for a strong leader and we ought to all be praying for that. And, uh, well, let's go who may go out before them and in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit. Lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. You shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim and the, uh, the Urim at his word. They shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation. God chose this man as the leader. He was Joshua. He was a successful military leader, but I bet some of you are picturing him as a young man, right? He was 80 years old when he's being commissioned. He's not a young whippersnapper. Yes, this is the new generation, but keep in mind, Moses is 120. Joshua is in the youth group compared to Moses. <laughs> not by our standards, but certainly by ancient standards. Uh, he was just getting going. A lot of times, people will make a fatal mistake when it comes to serving the Lord, and they will pick the ministry as a career, much like somebody would say, when I grow up, I want to be a fireman, or a policeman, or maybe I'll do this. And it seems that some will kind of look through the books in college and say, oh, hey, minister, oh, listen, they want one over here, great, I'll choose to be that. They'll go to college, they'll go to school, they'll learn how to preach, they'll learn all the little tricks, all the theology, get out of seminary, and maybe find out that they weren't called. How can you tell if you're called? By effectiveness. God must call a person. Man can ratify only, but man can never ordain a person. But you know what? It's pretty evident to see God's hand on a person's life. And as Moses saw God's hand on Joshua's life, I think it's easy to tell the hand of the Lord on people's life that God has called. I love it when I see young men in their teens, 20s, have a heart to serve the Lord, and then I watch them and they have obvious gifts. Man, I want to get behind them and push them higher. When I first moved to town, I started pastoring. I was 25 years old. And, and this is what most people said, man. Aren't you young? Aren't you a little young for this? Wow, you got a young pastor. Ah, he's in his 20s. They're not saying that about me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I don't care because I know there's a new generation coming up that God is raising up. And I love to see it. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Joshua was faithful. Um, we'll spend more time on Joshua next week. But now we won't, actually. We're, we're leaving Joshua. We're getting into kind of an overview of several chapters. Joshua was successful. God used him in a powerful way. And you're going to see that in the book of Joshua. How he just sort of takes that leadership and he feels comfortable in it. What was the secret of Joshua? Let, let me give it to you quickly. All right? Joshua did a few things. He had a makeup. Let me tell you the secret of this man, that it can be your secret. Number one, meditation. Meditation on the Word of God. Chapter 1, God said, Joshua, you will meditate on this Word day and night that you may observe to do it. Let this book get into you. Meditate on it day and night. Read your chapters for next week. Meditate on them. There's an old saying, seven days without reading the Bible makes one weak, W-E-A-K. It will make you spiritually weak. Meditate on it. Meditation number one. Second secret of Joshua, adoration. Joshua chapter five, before the battle of Jericho, the Lord appears to him and he worships. So he goes into battle with the Lord. Meditation, adoration, that is worship. Pour your heart out to him. Have a time of daily prayer where you pour out your burden and you pray for other people. Public victories are the result of private visits with God. Meditation, number two, adoration. Number three, I'll call it activation, just to keep the Asians going. Activation, doing it. In Joshua chapter 6, God said, March, Joshua. Now get going. There's a time where you can meditate and you can pray and you can read. There's a time to move, to get active, to step out in faith, to test the gifts. Make those your secret and watch God use you. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for the time that we were able to consider these truths of your word. The children of Israel standing now on the very brink, the threshold of entering that land, overlooking the Jordan River, going into the land of promise. I pray, Father, that we as believers would come to a place in our lives where rather than wandering through the wilderness or being deceived by the lusts of the flesh, we would enter into the fullness, the land, and lay claim to those promises that are ours, living in victory. We pray, Lord, that that would be ours this week, that we claim a little more land, a few more promises have a little more victory than we've had this week. Only by your grace. But it is possible and we cooperate with you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we have brothers and sisters that we can bring alongside of us to encourage us to go further. I pray that everybody here would know their gifts and callings where they fit in the body of Christ and begin to exercise those gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.